You can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the green dragon. Welcome to another episode of the Green Dragon Podcast. On tonight's episode, we have finding time for hobby and also building a force. With me is Charles. Hello. Matt. Howdy. Travis. Howdy, David. howdy, howdy, howdy. Greetings. And myself, I am Jeremy. Okay, first topic, finding time to hobby. We are all busy people. We do not have the time that we want to devote to our own personal pursuits. So we need to maximize every time. So what I want to hear from our wonderful panel is... How exactly they find time? What do they do with that time? And is it the right balance for them? Charles, how do you find time for your hobby? Well, fairly recently, I've come to realize that I'm actually a social hobbyist. Like, I'd rather be painting with other people than sitting at home watching a movie, listening to a podcast, listening to an audiobook, and painting. I just find it more enjoyable to be around other people painting than sitting at home by myself. I start work really early in the mornings. I find it hard to come home in the afternoon and do anything but sleep usually yeah it's just a bit difficult for me at times so i'm limited to the weekend when i can sleep a long night and have a good day excellent overview there we'll get back to some of those because you raised some wonderful points matt i'm the exact opposite i i prefer to paint alone preferably uh, other so people's... no one can judge you that's right people scare me so uh, i'll often sit down at my painting desk at home I'll put some music on, I'll put a podcast on, perhaps The Green Dragon, it's always nice to listen to. I Big heard plug. that's a good podcast. Shameless yeah, self-plug, man. Good. We so have yeah, a podcast. I'll, I'll throw some music on or something, I'll uh, paint away steadily. This semester I had uh, a lot of classes in the morning, so I'd get home and I'd just throw some music on and I'd start painting. But d- it does depend on what my classes are like. Uh, I'm not working at the moment, but when I have been working in the past, it does make it a lot more difficult. That's how I try and uh, get all my time in whenever I rock home from work or uni. Wonderful. Travis, you. Well, first of all, wow, that was a quick introduction. I now know why you give me so much crap for it. Go on. Anyway, aside from that, I'm sort of a mix of both sort of what Matt and Charles said. I'm in this sort of weird awkward position at the moment in my life where I have time, but I don't have time at the same time. I don't have much motivation. I don't really have a place to do hobby at the moment. So I'm sort of stuck in this weird thing of I want to do hobby, but I don't I can't really actually go out and do it. For me, going to, say, like a Games Workshop to paint or sort of a friend's house to paint, as much as I would like to to do that, it's hard to do that when it takes me so long to get there and then you lose all that time. So really, the only time I really get time to do hobby and paint and get stuff done is just before a tournament. I'm finding often I do that, you know, the 2 a.m. before a tournament, get the old army finished. But yeah, tournaments are the only thing really that gets my motivation to finish because it's the only time I have a... A sort of an insight or a goal to get stuff done. Well, my hobby time when it comes to painting and converting is sort of a hodgepodge of whenever I can fit 20 minutes in or half an hour. So I don't really go for the social hobbying because if I'm with a bunch of other wargamers, I want to be wargaming, I want to be swapping old war stories. I don't want to be sitting there with my eye pressed up to a model going, is that skin or flesh? <laughs> I want to actually be gaming. So... It yeah, becomes sort I, of I agree a, with that as well. Yeah, I like that. If, if you didn't get the reference, don't bother. Um, <laughs> so my hobbying becomes, if I've got a half hour, if I've got 20 minutes, I need to have a project going, because otherwise I'll spend 20 minutes sitting there at my painting desk going, hmm, hobbits, ruffians, I could do an extra layer on the Moomuck. 
So I need to have something actually half finished, otherwise nothing gets started. What do you do if you don't have anything started because you just finished something? He gets his brother to do then, it. Then, generally, nothing happens for the next month before I choose a new project, because I'll spend 20 minutes sitting there going, mm, what do I do? Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> and for me, I've, I probably was the most prolific hobbyist, and I spent a lot of time, a lot of my spare time in this, and then... Life sort of happened, and in addition to my full-time job, I've now got a family, so I've got a son, and I did a uni course as well this year, so I found that my time got cut down to the bare minimum. My my biggest strategy is just ignore the sleep. Instead of sleep, cut that out, just hobby. Where's Tiernan when you need him? <laughs> sleep is for the week. <laughs> I think he's passed out somewhere. From what, what, I find, what I find funny is, Jeremy, you just said like you found a lot of your time disappear and gone. You still churned out more more hobby than anyone else at this You've table. You've probably churned out more models this year than I have in the past five years. So. Without a doubt. <laughs> Easily. And I'm very proud of that fact. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to get too far behind in the models that I obtain. I end up getting a lot of models, so I really want to push through and, and keep making progress there. I've got lots of tricks there and tips there that I'll go through very soon, but there's a few things that I want to cover first. The social aspect, Charles brought this up initially, working together as a group compared to Matt talked about working on his own with a podcast. What do you guys think about? Do you prefer one over the other? Is there advantages to both disadvantages? I'd like to have that comparison to start with. Yeah, sure. When I have painted in a group, which has been occasionally at Games Workshop, I've gone down to Cheltenham. I I do feel a little bit pressured with other people's ideas around me about how I should be painting the models that I'm painting. That has happened occasionally. I was kind of forced into doing a Saruman, not necessarily the way I would have done it if I was at home. So in some ways, for me, there can be negative factors to it. But like, I do like having people around me who are enjoying the same activity that I'm doing at the same time that I'm doing it. So there's definitely some positives there as well. I went to you first because the four of us have done regular painting sessions. Matt, you're just a little bit far away from the travel point of yeah, view. Yeah, it's a bit of a travel Bit of a edge. hike. But Get a license and tra- a car. <laughs> He's already established that he's a poor uni student with no job. I That's think right. the car would be the a car's problem. a little way off. Travis, can you explain about the painting sessions that we have and, well, and how that helps you? Well, for me at least, I'm going to put this out there. When War of the Ring came out quite a number of years ago, I killed my desire to smash out hobby by painting 120 elves in four days. Ever since that time... I've still got those 120 elves, but I have never been able to batch paint to that sort of extent ever again. I can't do it. There's a barrier there and I can't get through. The only time I'm able to sort of breach a bit of that barrier is when I'm painting with Jeremy, David here, doing it as a group because you sort of get past that boredom need to finish large summer models when you're painting with another group. So whenever I come out to do hobby with a group or or something like that, go out and do it, I usually take a group of models that I need to get done as a batch paint. So, you know, 12 uh, Knights of Delamroth was my recent one, my Klansman Lamadon, large groups of troops that I normally wouldn't be able to smash out at home. That's what I would take to a group painting session. And David, you have the reputation amongst our group as... When Travis brings three models, he gets them painted in a painting session. When I bring four or five or six or seven or 20, I get them done in a session. You bring one head or one shield <laughs> and you almost get it done in a painting session. I thought that was How me. do you make such progress on your armies? Well, progress is not made as a group. If you're with a group, you're there. It's a committee process. Committees are not known for their efficiency. So I figure I'm not going to kid myself. If I bring 30 models to the painting session... I'm lugging around dead weight. So you're setting your standards really low and then almost meeting them. Well, 
Actually, I, I got more of the shield done than I was planning on. So I think I exceeded my expectations. <laughs> exceeded your expectations. Mission loaded. accomplished. Well done. Mission well done. accomplished. Very proud of that. Charles, you have a different take on it. When we go and we sit down for a Lord of the Rings painting day, you bring War Master models or something else. And I recall the last time I brought War Master models, you actually wanted to paint War Master models. Oh, yes, I'm very easy to get off topic. Yeah. Um, no, you I brought, are the off topic, Jeremy. I sort of, whenever I come, I bring what I either, either what I feel like painting if I've not got a project on the go or whatever army I want to play for the next tournament. And seeing as I now only go to approximately one tournament a year, maybe two if I'm lucky, there's not really the project armies. I just paint whatever I feel like it. And that kind of makes it hard for me to get motivated as well because I have to feel like painting something to paint it. The other point that was... Well, one of the other points was brought up. Matt mentioned podcasts and listening while painting in order to increase motivation. Does anyone else do this thing? I know that me personally, it's it's definitely what I do. If I'm not having my headphones on in an audio book or a podcast, I'm not painting... I'd like to hear your experiences with this. Can you do it? Can you multitask? Do you prefer video, audio, uh, the theatre? What is it? I'll actually start off. I've tried both methods, video and audio. I find it's a lot harder to paint if you're trying to watch something as well because you need to focus on your model with your eyes. But if you're trying to watch something that you have to pay attention to, you can't watch your model and the video. So I've actually found the last thing that I painted for my tournament army was um, I listened to the Hobbit audiobook right through all 20-something chapters of it, and uh, that was pretty enjoyable. I started off trying to watch YouTube videos, or just anything that I thought I might only be able to listen to, but I found if there was any visual at all, I'd get completely distracted. I ended up not painting and just looking at my computer. So what I started doing was just listening to music, and I found I really got into a rhythm doing that. I listened to a lot of alternative rock and kind of pop-punk weird stuff. So what kind of beats per minute do you usually use when you're no music? <laughs> 104, <laughs> just like fairly rhythmic, on. not too fast, not too okay, slow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, Jeremy. I used to do the same cardinal sin that Matt used yep. to do. You know, chuck Hobbit up in the background, Lord of the Rings or whatever. You end up just watching the movie or the TV show or whatever. What I um, found though, when I started watching this music, well, sorry, listening to this music, I'd suddenly be painting away and it's just complete silence. And I'd realised I'd listened to the whole album and just painted the whole time. I hadn't even noticed. Yeah, it's so, yeah. quite easy to blow through That's you know, right, a one yeah. hour and a half but album. See, but getting back to the point Jeremy made, one thing I've noticed is one, don't choose music that has lyrics in it. That's I don't know if that's a thing for everyone, but that's the thing I do. I usually choose music that has a lot of synths or a lot of uh, lots of beats per minute as Jeremy said because it gets you it gets you moving and it gets you sort of in this mindset of okay fast beats per minute I want to be paying quickly I want to move quicker and that's what sort of that's the music I drive to just saying <laughs> well that's the music well, that's I listen perfect, to when I paint or, or or just going around on the train as well I listen to lots of synths and stuff uh one guy I listen to a lot of Chain Algorithm. Check him up on YouTube. He's pretty cool. Uh, Sorry? Chain Algorithm. Thank yeah. you. And uh, Jeremy uh, introduced me to Orbital as well. So stuff like that have lots of, I'm not going to say techno, but lots of beats, lots of rhythms, lots of really fast-paced music I find is really good to listen to because it gets you in this zone of wanting to move things along quicker. Absolutely. I think the choice of music is important. I know in my other life, we often give people study advice. And one of the things is they often recommend classical music because it doesn't often have the lyrics. Whenever we get lyrics or visuals, the brain sort of pays attention to it. And all that paying attention can sometimes be detrimental to your own Mm. abilities. I remember something vaguely being told to me as well in like year 12 for study techniques. Mm. You didn't listen, did you? 
No, not until no, I, I started so. painting and realized, <laughs> no. no, it works. It works, people. Yeah. <laughs> They're not lying. Now, David, you have a very novel approach to this, and it's sort of the opposite. Can you explain? Well, I've found that lyrics don't trouble me if I know it well enough that I don't have to listen to them anymore. I was just about to say so, that. So, for yeah. instance, if it's something I've never heard before, don't put it on. You'll spend the whole time going, I wonder what he just said. I, however, get the video cassette of the Fellowship of the Rings, put it in the player, put it through the amp, Cut the TV Notice out of the circuit. Video cassette. Video yes. cassette. <laughs> video cassette. Actually, like VHS. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I Holy crap! I, I wire the TV out of the circuit so it goes straight. Do we need to build a time machine to send you back to the nineties? <laughs> Problem is, I tried the DVD versions, of like The Hobbit and whatever, but they keep throwing up menus. I want to just put it in and press play, and then I get stuck on the menu. And I've. A lot of people in music really like listening to records because that aesthetic and there's some imperfections there that are really appealing. And David's the same with the VHS. He really loves that grainy, low-quality vision, and, and it, it really likes, does help him. Does he it's like having real. to? Do you like having to wind the tape back in with your finger every now and again? No, that's an audio cassette. The no, subtle difference. No, no, I have had to do that with VHS as well because they were terrible, and the tape used to pull out of them every now and again. Uh, you sh- that's why you should buy the genuine tapes. Wait, hang on, hang on. Whoa, one step back here. You still have a VHS? Yes. It's one of those ones like wired into the DVD player and whatever, but... I'm just going to take a step back from now and just process that. Because... I'm just mentally applauding that. That's impressive. Okay, while you're thinking, I paint to the Fellowship of the Ring because I know what's going on. It doesn't distract me. You can zo- zone out for an hour and a half to an album. That's right. I can start painting... And then realise that it's all gone quiet and the Fellowship of the Ring has finished. Sorry, David. The the nineties just rang and they want their technology back. <laughs> Tell them I'm not finished with it yet. Stop stealing my jokes. <laughs> what joke? I was gonna say that earlier. I thought, no, nah, that's too lame. <laughs> no, no, we, we don't have lame. a standard for lame. Once again, we set expectations low and we lame, <laughs> lame lame was crossed when we brought up VHS. Yeah. Uh... I'm here. I am lame. Get over it. <laughs> okay, now Another point, uh, David, you brought up this one. Quick time, 20-minute sessions, uh, half an hour. Does anyone else use these? Can you sit down for a small amount of time and make any progress, or do you need a long marathon session, hours on end, listening to the the Fellowship, the Two Towers, the Return of the King all at once? Uh, The last time I was here, I'm pretty sure I spent about the first hour of our painting session just pulling all my models out and looking at what I had because I hadn't pulled out my Warmaster models in so long that I'd forgotten. And then I spent another hour writing an army list out of each of those blisters, packs of blisters. And then I actually put some on the base and painted some. So what's the minimum you'd sit down to paint for then? It takes you an hour to get the models out of the case, another hour to procrastinate. Is that, uh, is that a two-hour minimum, a three-hour minimum? If I'm at home by myself, I usually paint for an hour or two, and actually, because I just have the models sitting on my desk, I don't have to pull them out of anything or anything like that. But if I come for a, a social session at, say, your house, I'm aiming for a whole afternoon of painting, procrastination, banter, and enjoyment, basically. And poking fun. Don't forget the poking fun. That was covered by banter, yes. Fair enough. For, Matt? for me, the minimum is probably about 40 minutes. I can sit down for 40 minutes, just paint away steadily, and then get up and go do something else again. I don't think uh, sitting down for any less time than that is productive because you end up sort of looking at the models thinking, all right, what bit do I need to do next? All right, I'll mix the paint. All right, I'll quickly start doing one. And then by that time, you're already probably 10 minutes in and you already know what you're doing. So why not just keep going? I I think any less than probably 40 minutes is a a waste of time. But I don't know what I'm doing when I paint. I'm like, where do I want (laughs) the paint to go? And I have to redo it like 
12 times, and that's why it takes me so long to paint Grim Hammers. Yeah, because fair enough. Black and white and grey and awful. I get where you guys are coming from as well with the, the quick paint sessions. I used to I used to do them ages ago when I had my own place, and I used to have two desks in my room. One was a hobby desk, one was a gaming desk. Don't have that luxury anymore. And I have a weird sort of problem where I can't keep painting for long periods of time, like really long periods of time. My eyes just cannot handle it. So I've got a, sort of a time limit on myself. I know when I sit down and start painting, I've got two, two, maybe three hours to really get some hobby done before I need to stop and take like a good hour break to let my eyes readjust and reset. So when I sit down, I have to know that I'm going to be sitting down for this amount of time. I need to set aside this time, but I need to use all of it because small amounts of time doesn't do it for me because I'm such a slow painter. So I got to know that when I'm going into something, I'm going to be sitting down for two, three hours. I'm going to get a session done, and that's what I got to aim for. Because yeah, too short, not quite enough done, too long, and I basically hurt myself. I find with amount of time I allocate to painting depends on how much time I've got free. So if 20 minutes is all I got, then I paint most of my guys either to a uniform or they're just random militia. They've shown up with whatever they're wearing, so. I don't really have to worry about the colours because they're either I know what colour it is, it comes out of a pot, doesn't need mixing, or it doesn't matter if I can never make the colour again because I only need one of it. So I can fit it in 20 minutes, or if I've got 3-4 hours to burn, I'll use them. So it's a hodgepodge of whatever I've got. I like to make sure I'm meeting some goals in the sessions. So probably in at least half my painting sessions, I want to be finishing models. I want to actually get them done. I can finish a model, the quickest is about half an hour to 40 minutes for an infantry model. So I'll plan around that, and that might be something that to do with uh, might be some hobbits or some Rohan or something that's relatively simple. If I've got more time, I'll try and get as much done as I can there. And occasionally, I'll have to go and do a session where it's building models, which is not my favourite part. Converting models, which is good fun, or undercoating and and basing and things, which is not particularly fun. But I'll try and plan it out so I'm always making progress, and that helps motivate me to make some more progress. I've been finding that I've been liking taking photos and putting them up on Facebook pages and and sort of showing off here so I got some hobby time and you didn't <laughs> and that makes me motivated to keep painting there and other people put stuff up and I find that when I'm not able to paint or not able to put time in I'm able to look at that and go oh everyone else is making progress as well I can't wait to get back to this I'm not ashamed to say I'm, I'm fairly certain that the more likes I get when I post up a painted model that better I feel about that model <laughs> most definitely <laughs> okay thanks for that now next part Travis, you mentioned tournaments and how your motivation changes when a tournament's coming up. I want you to start on this one because you are probably the biggest tournament hall we have in this room. Yeah, I would say that is a very safe assumption uh, right there. Not to be overshadowed too much by overshadowing too much uh, Matt here because you do attend quite a few, nearly as many as me. Well, for me, because I go to so many tournaments every year, it's, it's nearly up to once a month, to be honest, once you average out the whole year. So that's quite a few tournaments and... I like to say something new to every tournament, a new, completely new army. Problem is, I've ran just about every one of them, so I'm sort of starting to recycle old stuff. But that's neither here nor there. I like to paint at least one new thing for an army these days, at least one new thing or just a group of stuff. Because one, it helps you get hobby done, and two, it gets you motivated for the tournament. It gets you revved up. I strongly advise against trying to do those all-nighters before a tournament. I've done them. They're a bad idea. It wrecks you before the tournament. But night before, I can see, you know, so long as you make sure you finish with enough time to get, you know, a seven, eight hours sleep before the tournament is usually a good idea. But 
the reason why I find tournaments is a great motivation is because you want to get your stuff done to show off at the tournament. That's the biggest thing. People love to show off at tournaments and you want to show something for it. You want to bring models out that you've done. And I think tournaments are a great way to get that motivation because you have a deadline. There's something to aim for. Yeah, for sure. I know that most of the hobby that I do is based around what I know I'm going to be taking to tournaments. I'll often write a list, decide on what I'm going to bring along to the tournament, and then collect all of that and paint it all up. So I I definitely agree with the idea of at least getting a few new things to each tournament that you do. So recently we went to Red Dawn, Red Dawn Rising, which was uh, Patrick's tournament up in New South Wales, up in Sydney. And uh, I decided to go with Dwarves just based on our team's theme. And I Three thought, hunters, yay. yeah, I could have just taken dwarves that I already had, like an entire list that I already had, but I decided, uh, well, for one, I knew I was going to take Gimli. So there was one model I had to paint, but I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll throw in a few new things that I haven't painted yet just so that I can get those done so I can make some progress mm. into my backlog. So I added another five iron guard that I thought I would paint for that tournament. And I did that in a few weeks and it, it's definitely a good motivation for getting little bits of your backlog done at a time. Now, David and Charles, you guys don't play as many tournaments as Matt and Travis. Do you find that the tournaments motivate you? Is that something that you like? Or do you find that it doesn't really change at all? Charles? For the last few tournaments, I've actually either played Gondor or borrowed an army. So I haven't really been motivated recently to actually paint new stuff for a tournament at all, really. But it used to, like, before I had a fully painted army or even different gaming systems, I would spend a week, two weeks before the tournament just bashing out models consistently. And I used to enjoy that, and I guess I don't as much anymore. Generally, I've, I've got the project that I'm working on, and if it gets finished in time to get included in the army list, it goes in. If it doesn't, it doesn't. There are some exceptions to that. Normally, it would be a specific hero that I'm after. I'll put in the effort the night before to paint them up or whatever. But if it's just a project that I'm working on, then there'll be another tournament if it doesn't get finished in time. As Charles just mentioned about uh, smashing out a bunch of models just before a tournament, have you guys done that in the past? Because I know that I have. I've done like 50 model orc army in a couple of weeks directly before a tournament. Yeah, the uh, I'll go back to a previous point I made earlier. The 120 the, the models else, yeah. I did in four days was 120 models I needed for a War of the Ring army. The week before I went to CanCon. So Just one week. I painted four models between the Monday and the Thursday. Jeremy came picked me up on the Friday morning and we drove up to Cam- Canberra and that killed me. So I wouldn't recommend doing entire armies before. I've seen even now, like the most recent all-nighter I did, it was only six models. If you know you're not going to get something done, don't try and cut corners to try and get it done to like a, a standard to take to a tournament. You're just going to kill yourself later because I know the six models, which were six Elven Cavs, some of the new Cavs, beautiful models, I really regret rushing them and to the point where I'm almost tempted to buy a new box and paint them up to, to replace them. My tournament preparations changed a lot. Before I had the family and the, the extra uni course, I would make a new army for every tournament and that was it was always the case. I always did that. I want to compete for best painted, but I also want to try something different and I've been playing the game long enough that I want to experience something different. So I always made a new army from scratch. Now it's almost the opposite. It's I look through what I've been painting recently and can I make an army list based on what's there. So I took Hunter Orcs a few tournaments ago because I just painted a bunch of Hunter Orcs for scenarios and I thought... One or two models, a banner and a horn, and I've got an army list. So it's all about sort of, for me, doing 
new army still, but very small amounts to do it. I think for the last Red Dawn tournament where I went to, um, I ended up painting five shields because I had the models for a scenario and I just put, put new shields on and then that's all I could devote time to because I was in exam periods and, and it was a really, really busy time. So five shields, army, done. I'm lucky in that I've got a dedicated room to my hobby so I can leave it set up. Some of you are not. Can you just tell us how you set up, where you do your... Uh, your hobbying, and we, when we talk about hobbying, we're talking about the conversions, the painting, the the assembly side of it, and how that affects your your time. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off here because I've experienced sort of nearly every possible way of having a setup for hobby. I've had, I remember when I was younger, I didn't have any place, and the only place I could do stuff was at a games workshop because my parents wouldn't let me, you know, sit up on the kitchen table. I then went from that to sort of living in my own house and having an entire dedicated room to doing that. Then I moved out again, and then I've had my own table in my room, like a spare table set up permanently, and now I'm back to I'm staying at someone else's place. They don't really like me, you know, setting up and painting. So I've experienced everything. One thing I can say, I love having my own room to be able to just do hobby in. That's great. That's not always what you get, but, you know, a small table next to your desk or whatever is really, really, really handy. That was probably my favorite aspect of having a sort of an area set up, and I think it's... If you've got like a small table sitting in your garage or something, grab it, bring it into your bedroom, set up with paints and stuff because it's something you can... Well, our painting set up at the place where I am at the moment, me and my brother, with parents, whatever. So we've got a desk which has all the paints, all the whatever on it. One of the hardest problems is with two people using the one desk is you can never find the paint you're looking for because <laughs> they've always used it and they've put it back somewhere else. And Never mind. You know it's there somewhere. It'll turn up eventually. <laughs> we also have an 8x4 gaming table sort of in the room next to it, but it's normally too buried and stuff to paint on. So that's, that's an aside. Recently, I have moved around a lot, and I've found it very difficult to get painting time in. Even when I moved down to the Hobbit house, which some people may know about, I found I didn't get a lot of painting done, even though I did have stuff set up on a table, just because uh, it was so busy moving in and out. And playing games. And playing well. games, mostly getting distracted by with, doing that. When you live with four other gamers, you generally don't get painting done That's because right. you're gaming <laughs> with those four other gamers. Yeah. Before that, I hadn't had my own bedroom for uh, probably about three years, so I hadn't really ever had a space to do my hobby. Up until very recently, in the last few months, I've I convinced my dad to let me borrow, quotation marks, borrow a table, which I will not be giving back because it's awesome. It's basically a full dining table, and I've just got everything set up on it. I've covered it completely with models and paints and materials for sculpting and that sort of thing. And uh, it's just brilliant. I get so much more done now than I ever have in the past just because I have my own space. So I highly recommend getting your own space for that. I haven't really lived at home in like the last few years, and I've lived in basically notoriously small bedrooms which have had enough room for like my two bookshelves, a chest of drawers, my Slums. desk, and my bed. No, no, it's just two two shelves full of wargaming books and paraphernalia and my desk. And so Travis is cracking up at the word paraphernalia. I am. <laughs> I think that's a great word to use. Unfortunately, in the last few years, I've had a desktop computer, so it's had to sit on my desk. So I've got basically about six inches in front of my monitor where I can set up paints, my palette, and 40 to 50 odd models that litter the desk and they're in various states of brokenness because of the fact that that desk is a, so a shared shared desk. Thank you very much. I'm going to finish this segment off with just a little story because this is a topic that's probably specific to my circumstances only. 
during the master's preparation, I was tasked with making a lot of tables there. And with a young family, it would have been impossible to have the time to do that. So my wife was talking about going overseas to visit her family. So I conveniently helped her choose the dates that, that would facilitate me having a fortnight off before the, the master's tournament in order to make terrain. For those who are able to do that, I highly recommend it. Paying for family members to go overseas, paying to get rid of your family, brilliant. Highly recommended, and that is how you find time for your hobby. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk about building a force. This is from the original oranges from starting out all the way to the finished products. Once again, I have Charles, Matt, Travis, David and myself on. Matt, we're going to start with you. I want you to talk to me about how you create an idea for a force. What what drives you, what motivates you and what's the your aim from the start? Sure thing. So I, I'm mostly building forces for tournaments. That's my main drive when I'm when I'm starting out. So that comes down to a, a few different things about how I want to go with that tournament. Sometimes it'll be based on the players pack. I'll take a look at the players pack. I'll go, right, what can I do to maximize perhaps the soft scores, the composition scores, maybe just what I've got lying on my table at the time. And I think mm, I might like to use that in my army. And then I'll build an army around that. It might be a particular model I want to use. Just I may might not have it at the time, but I might go, gee, that'd be. I think that'd be a lot of fun to use. For instance, I've just picked up a dragon, and I think I'll be using that in the near future. So that's something that I considered uh, very near. <laughs> <laughs> might be in the past by the time this is released. We don't know. <laughs> Better in the true sense, though. Time yeah. travel. So those are a few different ways that I'd go about with the beginnings of my force, I think. What about you, David? If I'm starting a new force, it has to be something that can at least ally into an existing force because I take forever to get anything painted. So if it wants to be used in the next year and a half, it has to be able to go as an ally. So that's generally what I'm looking for is something that'll tie in with what I've got. On top of that, it's a case of what looks cool. If I've got an idea for a conversion, that goes in. Otherwise, it's a case of take a look at the list, go, ooh, I want one of them. I'm on a similar ilk here to Matt. I build armies for tournaments, but that said, I do do a lot of collecting as well. I have a massive backlog. I am a little jealous of Jeremy and how little he has compared to me. I look to tournaments and what I want to be taking next and I'm in a weird sort of boat because I like to run new new armies to new tournaments so I'm constantly looking for stuff that I haven't used or ran before so I get to this point where I go what haven't I done yet and then I look at that and go alright what haven't I done alright I haven't run a goth mog or I haven't run a stalkers or an aragorn the king mode with his big pointy sword of doom so I'll get that model and then start to work out how to build an army around, how to build a solid competitive army and then make it work and then make people cry. I'm a little bit like Travis in that my primary consideration when building an army or starting a new one more specifically is are the models cool looking and can I build a really good theme around them? So the last army that I sort of wanted to start from scratch was an all Uruk-hai evil army with a ringwraith on Falbeast leading it basically and it was a, a black gate army. So it had the 
big shield orcs. Urukai, I forgot Shagrat? the name. Uh, Blackguard, are they? Yeah, the Blackguard of Baradur, Shagrat, and a lot of generic Urukai. And well, basically, Blackguard aren't really generic Urukai. Oh, I think the end sort of was elite. in addition. Yeah, in addition, yeah, in addition to the Blackguard. Of... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I apologize. And so, like, because it's the first, I like, the second evil army that I will have done. I sort of wanted to paint new models I'd never painted before, so I picked something that I thought was really different because the last evil army I'd done was Corsairs, and so they were all bright colours and half-painted still. Yeah, and other, other than that, it's just, do the models look cool, pretty much? So, yeah. like, I'll go through the new releases and stuff and go, oh, that's a new new model that looks nice, and I'll um sort of buy it on the spare sort of kind of thing, impulse buy it. I... Probably approach is slightly different to a lot of people. I intend to, to have all the models and to, to finish them all. So my main motivation is to choose a scenario and I'll make both the evil and good forces for that. The way I choose it is usually the key moments in the books and movies are always the first places to start. So when the Desolation of Smaug came out, I wanted to do the Barrels Out of Bond. That was my main aim and I got that done probably in the first couple of weeks of the book coming out. Likewise, for the first Hobbit movie, I had the when the eagles were attacking the the dwarves done reasonably early. Um, I even sort of made a proxy Azog for that. I had the goblin town scenarios done and the trolls, all sort of key moments that I remember from the books. So I will go about my collection from a scenario point of view and then fill the gaps later. So if I've made some stuff for Gondor scenarios, I'll go back and say, oh, I actually don't have any mounted Citadel Guard. I'll add some because they're in the list or expanding out the Dunland list or whatever. I'll fill the holes later. And then if it turns into a force, I'm happy. If it doesn't, that's fine as well. I've got lots of models that just sit there as decoration or just as a painting challenge. But yeah, I always go from it from a scenario point of view. How important is theme and story to you guys? I know Charles mentioned that. How about the other three of you? How uh, I've mentioned that as well. Trav? I think it even it's always important. You want an army that looks like an army, not a hodgepodge grabbing a bit of everything. You want your army to do exactly that. They're marching off to war. They're, they're going to engage an enemy. And that's I think that's something that throws me a bit. When Even when I go to tournaments and stuff, I look at some armies and go, why are you doing it like that? And it, it throws me a bit sometimes when I see certain people, you know, get certain models and put them together because I like to look at the stats and stuff. But really... A lot of the time, a lot of the really, the stuff that works well together, the stuff that mesh is the generic stuff, is like the generic orc horde backed up by a couple of, you know, elite choices. You want your army to look like it's supposed to be an army. And usually, funnily enough, those armies that look like actual armies are the ones that perform better anyway. If I'm preparing for, an, for a tournament, if I can't get a spinner theme for my army, then I won't take it. I'll actually swap and change things until a theme will fit. Though this is Lord of the Rings, you can spin a theme for almost anything. In fairness, all your themes involve Mumak. Yes, that and, is a And crucial... trudging through the sewers of Asgillius. Yeah. They only did that once. <laughs> but the point is, it's the Lord of the Rings. You can stretch a theme to almost anything if you put the effort in, and that's half the fun. It's You've got the sewers of Osgiliath, you've got the endless wastes of Harad, you can throw a decent story around your army, and if it gets slaughtered, then it'll do so gloriously. No, I agree with that. I I often uh, just sort of make my warbands so that they seem kind of thematic, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, in the musters that we do on the podcast, I often uh, try and make them look a bit neat, if that makes sense. 
I, I do like running armies that have a bit of theme, but at the same time, I don't mind doing something that's a bit out of the box, maybe. Like, I don't know, running a dragon with some Easterlings, just kind of out of the blue. That's not really that out of the box. It's I've not that out of the box, before. but, uh, you know, it, it. and it's not hard to justify thematically, but at the same time, it's, Dragonites, not, it's not hardcore Dragon guard, theme. Black dragon. Yeah, yeah, there's some dragon imagery going yeah, that, on with the Easterlings. That is definitely true. <laughs> yeah. But, I don't know, a Watcher in the Water with some Orcs, maybe, is another idea that just kind of is... You know, it's not in the books, but Outlandish. why not? Why not? It could have... If you can the spin water, the theme, go for it. Exactly. Mm. So, yeah. Once again, themes a little bit different for me as well. It took me a long time to get over playing in tournaments that you had to play against themes that didn't work. I've been well known to express my dislike of having to play good versus good over and over again or evil versus evil. I think I've mimicked that dislike now. It yeah, you've sort of to, probably got it from, yeah, from me. It irks me to have to play my elves or my Dalamroth against, you know, a shiny Gondor army or some hobbits. It just it doesn't feel quite right. And my concern is that most of the forces work really well, so you don't have to, to have that unthemed force that couldn't possibly work, the, the goblins and corsairs because they, they go well or whatever just sort of throws me off a little bit. Sometimes I'll go to a tournament and I haven't actually read the stats of my models and like I will, I'm so into the theme and that sort of stuff. I've looked at the points value. I'm not actually that concerned. So I'll go in and I won't know what the defense is or I won't know what their, their courage is and it doesn't really matter to me and I'll work it out pretty soon. It's not going to make a huge difference, but that's sort of, I know I'm unique or maybe I'm a bit more unique than I don't think anyone else approaches it in that way. And Matt's teased me a lot about not knowing things before a tournament. And I just It's the banner one, Jeremy. The banner one. It's always the banner one. <laughs> just take the yellow Kill points. Approach. That one. One thing I've seen a lot on the Facebook page when people talk about starting armies, and this is, I think, in my stage of life, I'm a bit far, far removed from it. They talk about budgets and how much it costs to make it and, and um, what's feasible because of that. Now that some models are difficult to get, are you willing to put the finance towards it? Does this affect any of you, the the budgets, the finances behind it? How do you go about doing that? How many banks do you have to rob to get your next army? I find the um, budget constraints on an army generally turn into conversion work. For instance, I wanted serpent riders. I didn't want to pay for serpent riders, so I got up my Harad raiders and chopped them up and put some Numenor heads on. I wanted some black Numenorians. I had some spare serpent raider heads. I stuck the serpent raider heads on the Numenorians that I chopped the heads off of the serpent riders. And generally, lack of funds turned into conversion work. Takes longer, but was a whole lot of fun. I can understand the constraints on finances. Again, I'm a bit in Jeremy's boat here as well, where I've got pretty much everything. I've got the bare bones for every army. There's not an army I don't have that doesn't really have the the backbone already there. Yeah, people, stop giving away so many tournament prizes to Travis. He's got enough. <laughs> yeah. Stop being good but, at yeah, Lord I've, of the Rings, damn it. I've got the backbones for everything, so when I look at a builder list, I don't put constraints on any particular model. I know that if, if I'm going to need to grab or get something new for the army, it's going to be one or two models or a small group of elites or something that I don't have enough of yet. And you know, I'm I'm happy to fork out a little bit of extra cash to get those models too. So it's not really hurting me that much, but I can understand where people are coming from the, from the budget perspective. I think what you need to look at is some of the strongest and best ways to play the game and the best troops to play the game with are the basic troops. It's your basic Man of Gondor, it's your basic Rider of Rohan. Some of these choices are fantastic. You just need to take them. Don't be put off by the fact that the supposedly weaker troops, and I use that term loosely, are the bad troops. There's sometimes... He made the air commas, people. Mm. He made the air commas. Lord of the Rings, commandment number four. Thou shall take basic troops. (laughs) 
We should probably Sorry. write these on stone tablets at we some point. Should. We get David, he still writes in stone tablets. I'm running low. Can somebody supply me with an extra chisel? <laughs> Hold on, I'll have to go to the store that also sells abacuses. On the flip side of that, I think what, what we're discussing there is basically paying to win, right? That's, that's um, the basic theory behind that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory, but I don't think it holds up in principle. I do not think you need to pay to win in this game. That wasn't my intention with the question, but that's actually a really good point. My intention was more that does the budget stop you choosing troops, which is what David answered, but can you talk about the paying to win and, and that sort of theory? Because I have heard that mentioned before. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I don't believe that exists in Lord of the Rings. Can One you of define the... it first? Oh, yeah, sure. Having the stronger troops or particularly strong heroes being very expensive can put some of newer players in particular uh, out of the running to win tournaments or win games. Lies. So that would be the theory behind paying to win. The one thing I would point to for Lord of the Rings that immediately disproves that is the cost of Lake Town models, which I think is, what, $40 for three of them? If you're paying money for models, yes. If you're paying money for models, then you're you're paying because you want those models. You're not paying to win games, I think. And uh, look, a lot of a lot of the plastic troops in Lord of the Rings are, are perfectly fine. Are some of the best troops in the game. Corsairs of Umbar, Riders of Rohan. Basic Haradrim. Exactly. People, basic Haradrim. If you want a dirt cheap army, don't look at all these Abrakan guards, serpent guards, serpent riders, black riders Numenorians. The best model in the Haradrim army is your basic Haradrim warrior with bow. So sometimes End the of rare, discussion. Sometimes the rarest and most expensive things just aren't even that good in the game, to be uh, honest. Often they aren't. I don't think we're paying for in-game ability a lot of times. I don't think the pricing structure's there. If someone's getting advantage by being able to afford more, they'd probably play against someone who's pretty close in terms of ability. So I can imagine if two new players or two very experienced players were able, one was able to have access to more models than the other, they might have a slight advantage, but I think it'd be relatively negligible overall. Charles, what do you think? I basically work full time and I always have part of my budget that I can spend on hobbies. I do have several hobbies, so I don't always get to spend X amount of dollars on wargaming. But I've also a mate of mine who owns a card store, my local card store, and he's told me that basically wargamers, once they've been in wargaming long enough, they've accepted the fact they've made a financial commitment to their hobby. So they're just willing to throw money at it usually a lot more than people in other hobbies. They're willing to pay to hire a table, throw money at their force every time they want to change it and throw money at food for playing and buying food from the venue they're playing at or whatever like that. All fair points there. I want to move on to something a little bit creative because that's definitely what I'm excited about. How do you go about choosing your paint scheme, choosing your basing, choosing your conversions about the army? And I'm hoping to get some unique experiences here. What do you do? Do you read books? Do you look at pictures? Do you look at movies? Do you grab three random colours? Do you go to the bargain basement and find the uh, the puke green that's on sale? How do you go about this? Travis? Well, for me, a lot of my armies these days are all about the centrepiece. Which model is the model or models in case of like, I don't know, like Morgul Stalkers from recently. But I think the best example I can think of this is my Aragorn the King army. I picked Aragorn the King. I'm like, I'm going to run this and I'm going to run an army with him. And then I grabbed Aragorn and went, how do I want to paint him? I painted him up the way I wanted him. I made him look the way I wanted him. And then I painted the rest of my army to match him. Basically, I look at the centerpiece model and make everything revolve around him, make everything flow 
to either support him in game and to look just as awesome as he did. So if I've got an Aragorn dressed in white with a big red cloak, he has got all these other guys dressed in white and blue. That's what I'm going for when I make an army. I look to focus everything around the centerpiece model. Sometimes I'll think of a particular color scheme that I want to start off with. So for instance, with my orcs that I did a couple of years ago, my first thought was I, I just want to do blue. I want it to look marshy. I want it to be blues and greens. So I started off with the blue and then Flash of Inspiration just took a green wash and just laid it over some armor. And it turned out really nicely with a kind of glistening green sickly color. So I, I think sometimes it's just the little things. Sometimes you just pick up a particular idea once you've already started and it just works out really well for that army. I draw inspiration for my uh, armies sort of from a couple of different sources. Initially, my first army was Gondor, and basically I was drawn into the game by watching the movie. And so I painted my Gondor exactly as they were in the movie, like bright, shiny, silver metal tin cans. And I loved them. And they might not have been the best paint job, but I loved them, and I put a lot of effort into them. (laughs) Shh, you. Now I've sort of taken that to the next level. I've saw the Grimhammers and the uh, Erebor Dwarves in the new movie, the first one, and wanted to paint them. Then I was like, my painting technique is advanced enough to give non-metallic metal a go, and so I did. I think it varies army to army. For my main army, the Harad, they picked up their blue and desert scheme because I wanted a scheme that made some kind of sense. So they're in their desert camouflage. But my original batch of Harad from the Battle Games issue somehow ended up sky blue. It was a hope. Ah, it was a terrible mistake. Don't paint your Harad sky blue. And if you do, make sure you highlight them or wash them or something. It was a really <laughs> bad idea. But it meant when I then went to paint them in actual colours, everyone knew I had blue Harad. So that's why my blokes have blue cloaks over their desert camo, so people will know they are my Harad, and they can go in, slay things in glory. <laughs> I've painted most armies, so I've, some of them have gone very similar to the movie colour scheme. So things like the Rohan, the Gondor are very close. Others, like my elves and my eastern forces, easterlings and the Harrod forces, have gone totally different. A lot of it's about making my forces look different on the battlefield so that when they're fighting against each other, I can spot the differences. With the Lord of the Rings movies, the colours, because they're so dark, things can tend to blend very evenly. And the, the problem with that is sometimes you get a good force and an evil force and they both just look so dark you can't tell the difference. So I like to make sure mine are... Are very different there. Sometimes I like to challenge myself with new colours, sometimes I don't, but I'll usually go with something I haven't done before. So um, my latest one at the moment is a Lake Town Force. I'm going for a purple and red colours, which is not something I've done before. In the books they and the movies they're using a bit more blue in there, but I've taken that away because I've done some blue forces before, so I wanted to go for something different there. Now, big one, when is your force finished? How do you know it's finished? Do you stop at the tournament army? Do you add more to it? Is it never finished? Is it there's some point where you can just say, I'm never adding another model to it? I've been painting Gondor since 2003. I still don't think they're <laughs> finished just because I look at the paint job on my original model and go, that's horrible. I know I can do so much better than that. Unfortunately, I don't want to paint more Gondor because I already have a full 800, 900 point amount of models for it. And so like, I've put in all the conversions that I feel I need to and I don't really have much more that I want to do for that. So I guess I would call it finished because I don't want to do more. But then again, I kind of want to do more because it's terrible paint jobs. I think for my armies, finished is a temporary state of being. It's a case (laughs) of 
mission accomplished, we can move on. And then once you've moved on, you glance back and go, then again, they're a pretty good troops choice. I could do with a few more Serpent Raiders. I could do with a few more Black Numenoreans. So you come back and you attack a few more and you go, it's finished. And then you go, you know what, I really need a lance for that hero. And so on. So it can be finished, but it doesn't stay finished. Yeah, 100% agree. Every time... I, like, I thought my Rohan were finished, like, a few years ago. Nope, next time when I took them to, I had to highlight the cloaks again. Uh, I thought my dwarves were finished. No, I had to... I'm, I'm going to have to re-highlight them all after doing another six models because they're just a much higher standard than my previous finished standard. Uh, it's never really finished, is it? Do you ever really pack away an army? No, nah, you always bring it out again and do a little I bit do. of extra. Well, you do. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. To some extent, though, I'm in a very lucky position where I have a couple of armies where I have every single option for that particular army list painted to a standard I am happy with. And I think that's the point that you need to reach, is you get to a point where you're happy with everything you've built for this army and you're happy with how you painted them. I know this is one for my Dilemma I love that army to bits. That is my go-to army when I can't think of something to play because I love playing it. It looks great on the table and I can just grab the case. I don't have to worry about building an army list because I know I have every option in that case. I don't have to, you know, fuddle around with stuff or remember specific models I need yeah. to make sure are in specific. the case. I don't have to remember to put certain models in the case. I have everything there to run a mono fiefdoms list without anything else. I'm similar to that. I know my Hobbit army's finished because in the current set of rules, I've got all the models. I've got enough to max out on warbands. I can't actually fit any more. I actually got some pair Hobbits. I've got four or five that I can't possibly fit in unless I'm doing scenarios. That force is now finished. Until I get to that point where I can look through the book and see every war gear option and of every model, um, the force isn't finished. But it's it's reasonably achievable for most of them. There's not that many options usually. And with it, I don't have to get a dozen or 20 of each things. It might be that I have three models with the axes and four with the spear and I don't use them a lot but they're there. Yeah, you don't need anyway. a you don't need to have a battle with yeah. the spear. You but don't I need, a need to with have yeah. my high elf force for example, I'll go through all the scenarios and just find out how many high elves I need for every scenario in the in the game. So I might need 24 bowmen. So once I've painted those 24 bowmen, that's all the bowmen that I need. Any extras I can use but I, it's not a priority anymore. I, on a similar vein to those scenarios, I like looking at warbands too a lot a lot now. I look at, for instance, I'm going to use my Fightons again as an example. I look at my Clansmen and Lamadon and my Axemen and Los Angeles. I'm going, I'm not really going to run more than one full warband of these guys, so I'm not going to get more than one full warband of them. I'm going to stick with the 12, paint them up, and yeah, done. Thank you so much, guys, for that, and thank you, audience, for joining us in this discussion. Hopefully, you've got something out of it. I know we all have, and we've learned a little bit about each other, and we feel better because of it. Now, this on a final therapy, word, Jeremy. remember, traps win games, and one day ask me about the one-model traps. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on the Green Dragon Podcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener. Until we meet again.